0: Listen to challenging topics and insightful conversations. We don't just
1: report the news, we provide the real story behind the headlines by talking to global decision makers and influential figures. This is The Agenda.
2: This week on The Agenda, countdown to COP28. As the world gathers in the UAE for the annual climate conference, will this meeting be anything more than a lot of hot air? World leaders, scientists and environmentalists will gather in the United Arab Emirates for the latest UN climate conference, COP28. And far from hitting the plan 1.5 degree warming, the United Nations has warned that the world could be facing what it called a hellish three degrees if urgent action isn't taken. So can COP28 deliver where so many other gatherings appear to have failed? Joining me now is Kevin Conrad, the executive director of the Coalition for Rainforest Nations. Thanks for coming on the agenda. Kevin, what do you think the best thing is that can come out of COP28?
1: Well, as I look at COP28, I look at it from two lenses. So lens number one is the global stocktake shows that if countries actually implement their NDCs, we will bend the curve for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. Now, that's big news. The problem is that if you look at the plans that are already in place for more fossil fuels, we're going to push the curve upward again. And if you look at the finance that's been mobilized to bend the curve, it's woefully insufficient. So the plans are good, but we've got to execute. And that's the challenge.
2: So is it going to be a a breakthrough climate conference or or just another talking shop?
1: Well, I think we've got to look to the COP president for leadership. So talking the talk is one thing, but you've got to walk the walk. So this COP president is also the, the head of ADNOC, which is one of the largest energy companies. So what is their plan to actually reduce production to match the science? And if they take the leadership, maybe we can talk to other energy companies about doing the same. So if this is just another talk fest, we're gonna fail. If this is a chance for actual leadership from the energy producers, that could be very, very interesting.
2: You talk about the energy producers, but there really does seem to be much more of a focus on the private sector, certainly in the in the build-up and the run-up um, to, to this COP. There's been a lot of engagement with, with oil and gas, um, also with the renewable sector. So what really needs to happen to get the private sector engaged and moving?
1: Well, I think it's going to be regulation the the voluntary markets have failed us they failed us from atmospheric integrity but they've also failed us in scaling after 20 years the voluntary markets which the corporates seem to favor haven't even covered one percent of global emissions when it comes to actual cancellations of credits so we need regulation and that's where governments need to step up. They need to step up and implement the Paris Agreement. We have a global accounting system. We have a, a set of standards which are agreed by all countries. And we don't have another chance. If the Paris Agreement doesn't work, we're going to be at five degrees.
2: So you want regulation, but what activists, what critics and, and the head of the United Nations really want is phase out of fossil fuels, the fossil fuels yes. that cause climate change. Are we? Any closer to that becoming a reality? That's
1: the problem is, you know, if you ask for voluntary phase out, largely of publicly traded companies, they have a hard time with their shareholders. How do we do this in a way we still deliver profits to you? That's where we need regulation, where a company can say, listen, I'm now regulated and I'm doing my best to deliver profits to you in a new world, which is a transition to renewables. You're just not going to get it done voluntarily. So corporates need to be regulated, otherwise we will fail.
2: Now there's a requirement at these climate talks for, for everything to, to be unanimous, to be decided by consensus. So if, if one country thinks another way, then nothing's going to move forward. Where do you think that the resistance is likely to, to come from this time?
1: The consensus is a double-edged sword, right? So consensus also allows small island states not to be left behind when there are massive economies that are just trying to push forward and ignore the most vulnerable but you know consensus also works the other way if a large block of countries wants to slow something down they can and that's where i think the transparency and the news coverage that allows us to identify the real issues in many cases that helps relieve any tendency to use consensus to block. So consensus is a double-edged sword. It does, it, it does really good work and it can also be used to disadvantage. And that's where we've got to have transparency.
2: You also mentioned finances. I mean, do, do you worry that financial aid from the rich nations to the global south is going to continue to, to fall short?
1: Look, the $100 billion goal was put forward by Gordon Brown in 2009. I was there. I remember it. And there was nothing behind it other than it sounded impressive at the time. Now we have a global stock take. The global stock take tells us that we have potential to bend the curve. If we don't, we have tensions pushing back against that, which are very real. And climate finance needs to match the goals that we set out under the global stock take. And it needs to empower ambition. So finance needs to scale up dramatically, otherwise we'll fail.
2: Let's talk about another area of your expertise, reforestation. We need to keep the rainforest standing. Um, If we're going to slow the climate emergency, is the world doing enough?
1: Not even close. Now, if you look at developing countries, they actually have been walking the talk, meaning they have promised to reduce emissions and they've done it. I mean, if you look at Indonesia, they've reduced emissions from deforestation by 50%. Papua New Guinea reduced emissions by 50%. In Papua New Guinea's case, not one cent of global finance has come in to support those efforts. And guess what? Without finance, emissions go back up. So finance for developing countries is critical and it's critical and and, def- and the, the issue of Red Plus or the Red Plus mechanism, Article 5, shows it. Thirteen gigatons of emission reductions from developing countries and only four percent of those emission reductions have been paid for.
2: Now, Kenya has announced a, a tree planting initiative. They're planting 15 billion trees in the next decade. and They've even given the country a, a special holiday for planting. Is that the kind of thing that all governments need to put into practice and to embrace?
1: Well, we need to stop deforestation first. You know, a, a healthy forest keeps trees growing. There's a lot of question about planting trees as to whether they're even going to survive, whether they're going to actually reduce the emissions or remove the emissions that are planned. at the same time, we're losing forests dramatically. So we've got to stop deforestation first. There's much more forest in standing forest, uh, much more carbon in standing forest than ever we're going to get by planting. Now, planting is a good thing, but, but, you know, in Kenya's case, they're still deforesting. So, you know, how do you add that up? Deforesting carbon-rich forests and planting sparse reforestation projects isn't going to get the job done.
2: So there are lots of complications, lots of contradictions in this whole um, climate debate. This is something I want to pick up on that you mentioned earlier. The COP28 president is an oil boss and the talks are being hosted by PetroState United Arab Emirates. How might that affect the potential outcome?
1: If the president backs up his talk with actual emission reductions in the company he runs, then you have a leader talking and walking, and that's what we need to see. Um, so far, I've heard a, a lot of excellent words, but I haven't seen the commitment from from the, the state itself. and And that's what we need to see. We need to see countries that have NDCs that are aligned with the science, that are actually implementing those NDCs with the ambition, the speed, and the scale that 1.5 degrees requires. And right now, those are far and few between.
2: Kevin Conrad, thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
2: China may currently be one of the world's biggest carbon emitters, but a new report suggests emissions could peak this year before heading into structural decline in 2024. That would help the country stick to its promise to be the quickest to move from peak carbon to net zero in history. So what can COP28 delegates learn from China and what does China want to see from the meeting? With me now is Dimitri DeBoer, Regional Director for Asia and Chief Representative in China for the environmental charity Client Earth. Thanks for coming on the agenda. Now something I wanted to talk to you about was what came out of that meeting between President Xi and President Biden in San Francisco. Um, It was that the US and China, who as as we know are, are two of the world's biggest polluters, agreeing to revive those stalled um, cooperation and collaborations when it comes to tackling the climate crisis. So what sort of show of unity are you expecting in Dubai?
0: Well, uh, a show of unity is a very strong wording. I think we we should be happy if um, uh, the the countries of the world realize, let's say, that uh, the climate crisis is uh, getting much more serious and is, is moving faster than anybody had expected. Uh, the COP in UAE will, t- will do a stock take. So looking at the, the current levels of ambition of all the countries and then uh, adding that all up and uh, comparing that to where we need to be in terms of addressing the climate crisis. And it's pretty obvious that what's going to come out of that stock take is that not enough is being done. Uh, But then the question of who's going to do what, who's going to ramp up ambition in what way is going to be very much the tussle as it always is at these COPs.
2: But I think of previous COPs, like like in Paris, where there was a joint statement between the United States um, and China, so that the two of those big powers thawing relations and agreeing to cooperate and talk more about the climate crisis is surely encouraging.
0: Absolutely. Um, that's you know the. It, it's very worrying when you see that the world's largest economies uh, are not uh, working together on such important issues like uh, like global climate change. And the fact that the United States and China now uh, have issued this joint statement uh, with very substantive uh, uh, text in it is actually you know a very very good sign. It's just when when you know you go into a cop like this, you also need to be uh, ready to. Expect for a lot of complicated dynamics, and the United States and China's relationship is is rather complex. So I wouldn't get your hopes up too high for this particular COP. The the COP in Paris was also a special COP in the sense that it it's once every five years or so when when those really big moments happen. Um, and so the COP in 2025, for example, in Brazil, could well be one of those really really big uh, COPs. But this one is important in terms of uh, I think as I said earlier, that because we're seeing such uh, serious climate impacts around the world, it's gone from something that we thought might happen in the future or scientists were telling us would happen in the future. And now it's actually with us today. A lot of countries are experiencing very, very serious climate impacts. Yeah. And so then the, the question of how to address it is that much more pressing.
2: So let's talk about some of those complicated dynamics that, that you mentioned, because the United States wants China to contribute to multilateral climate finance. Why has China resisted so far?
0: well i mean in the paris agreement uh, it's quite clear that the developed countries are supposed to take the lead in uh, addressing climate ch- uh, change and also in uh, uh, providing finance for the developing world to be able to uh, better uh, address climate change and so far the developed countries have been uh, slow in meeting a very important goal of 100 billion us dollars per year to be mobilized for climate finance And uh, because the, the, the developed countries have been slow in uh, realizing that goal, I think uh, the, the pressure has been much more squ- squarely on the developed countries to do so. Uh, but it looks now as though this year that goal might actually be met, uh, which is three years too late. That's not great, but uh, it's, it's great to see that that it is being met now. And I think what we're also seeing though is that, uh, that the need for climate finance in the world is actually much greater than 100 billion a year so it's it's a good step that that's being met but a lot more is needed and i I think going forward all countries that have the ability to contribute will. china is contributing in many ways though you know china's renewable energy industries are so impressive these days solar power has just gone from uh, something that was more expensive into something which is now much more uh, affordable than fossil fuels. And uh, you're seeing that China is deploying so much solar power uh, this year. It's completely beyond anybody's expectations. And so what I think is going to happen in the very near future is that solar power could become really the renewable energy of choice around the world, especially in, in the developing world. And you'll see China being uh, very actively working with countries all around the world in terms of making sure that that uh, that they can deploy their uh, solar power and and build their low carbon power
2: systems. You think that this COP is going to be important to lay the groundwork for for future meetings and maybe future agreements. So, what what signs are there that that things are really clicking into place for COP 28?
0: Well. I think the the most important shift that we're we're seeing and especially china's role here um in terms of the way china deals with the rest of the world so so within china i mentioned that the deployment of renewables is going much faster than anybody had expected that is going to change the the pace at which china can actually Uh, realize its energy transition. So that's a really important big piece of progress. But the way China deals with the rest of the world is also changing. So where previously in the Belt and Road Initiative, a lot of the focus was on large power investments, large infrastructure projects, that's now shifting very quickly to uh, a focus on green energy and projects which are more sustainable and so especially when it comes to the renewable energy and also the investments in power grids in other countries there we're seeing so much progress well one really good example was at the third belt and road forum just a few weeks ago Uh, the president of indonesia uh, and presidency had a meeting in which they discussed uh, renewable energy cooperation and indonesia received mous uh, so agreements with chinese uh, companies Uh, to the value of 54 billion US dollars, uh, which are focused on producing solar PV on storage solutions. So uh, power storage, you know, with with greater renewables, you need to have more storage in your grid um, and also other smart grid investments. So a huge set of agreements, which really will set up Indonesia to shift from Mm -hmm. uh, its previous high-emissions pathway towards a, a low-carbon power grid, which is really – is phenomenal. So so the way China worked with Indonesia there should set a really good example for other countries as they are thinking about their own transitions.
2: Dimitri Dupur, thank you very much. Thank you. Still to come here on the agenda plastic pollution and the need for a circular economy. We'll hear what one of the UN's champions of the earth wants to see at COP28.
1: Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China Africa Talk hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our Wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast, we'll see you there.
2: Welcome back to The Agenda. Amongst those attending COP28 will be a number of those named champions of the earth by the United Nations Environment Programme. One of this year's winners was the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and its CEO Andrew Morlitt joins me now. Andrew tell us a little bit about the foundation and its role in the green transition.
3: Uh, The Ellen MacArthur Foundation is really uh, focused solely on the um, development and promotion of the idea of a circular economy. So we work with many businesses, uh, leading businesses around the world, many innovators, uh, many governments and cities, policymakers, uh, and we've worked over the last 10 years undertaking a range of uh, research projects, but also uh, working with the um, actors in the system to develop solutions and to uh, drive towards um, both reducing waste and pollution uh, and also uh, regenerating nature by design.
2: What do you see as the clear priorities for COP28?
3: Well, I think uh, the clear priority overall is to move to action faster and, and at a much greater scale and pace. Uh, for us at the foundation, what we're really keen to do is to is to demonstrate uh, the linkage between the idea of a circular economy and uh, reducing the energy demand of the system most of COP is focused I think on uh, the idea of uh, renewable energy promotion and energy efficiency which is super important. Uh, In recent years it's broadened out to other topics as well but uh, what we're keen to help people understand is that the way in which we make and use things including food has a huge impact on the energy demand on the CO2 emissions and so we hope that the this year, there'll be uh, increased focus, focus on that and system solutions rather than uh, just mitigation ac- actions.
2: And let's talk about your push for the circular economy. You, you talk about moving from take, make and waste to eliminate, circulate, regenerate. So what does the circular co- economy really look like to you?
3: Well, I think we, we, we see many examples of the circular economy um, in action now, we just need to bring them to scale. The the idea is really through designing into the economy these ideas, we can keep materials in the system longer so we can keep products in use longer, we can repair, remanufacture, recycle, uh, and design for uh, for that right at the outset. Uh, So we really are keeping what we put in the economy in use uh, at high productivity for much longer. And that has multiple benefits. It, it reduces the uh, demand for new raw materials, which leaves space for nature. We're not extracting raw materials at, at the same intensity. Uh, we keep the energy that we put into making these products in use. So we, we actually you know, really capture the embedded in energy that goes into making things and we keep them in use longer. And if we're we're clever about this, we can actually start to design into the economy ways that are pro-nature, that nature-positive by design.
2: You mentioned there are some clever ways that it's already happening. Um, So tell me a little bit, give me some real examples of of companies and uh, countries and regions that that are are putting the circular economy into motion.
3: Well, we see really quite a few uh, leading global companies now investing significantly in uh, new forms of regenerative agriculture investment. So they're they're actually looking at the way in which they are designing food and working with their supply chains and and the farmers, in fact, to uh, put in place regenerative practices. And and this is this is a really important uh, development because we're seeing the demand signals for new forms of agriculture that uh, sequester more carbon, that are pro biodiversity, uh, that are that are more have more positive impacts on water. So this is an example of, of, of uh, how you can build into the economy in nature positive intent. Nestle is doing a lot of work in this uh, field um, in, in many markets, uh, working with farmers, uh, uh, PepsiCo, uh, Walmart. I mean, there are, there are numerous examples and more and more coming. Uh, Unilever, Danone, you know, in the food space, we're starting to see the fashion players wake up to this as well, and and think about how they can work both more with more circularity, new business models, but also designing uh, for the materials that they use in their fashions. So I think what's important that these um, these innovative actors and the examples, uh, both for the big players and for the small players, uh, need to you know find ways to scale. So you know they're competing at the moment against many other organisations that that aren't doing this and who are just, you know, continuing to apply extractive economic practices in a way that which makes the playing field very uneven. So you've got, you know, companies investing and and looking to do uh, these regenerative practices and, you know, for good reason, because it gives them long term supply uh, certainty and more resilience uh, in their supply chains. Uh, But you've got many others who are still very, uh, very much not in that space, who are just extracting and wasting and uh, you know, part of the uh, take waste, m- uh, make and waste sort of economy.
2: Well, that brings me to something else, which is a big focus a- of what you do, um, and that is tackling plastic pollution. But you know what? That's not on the official agenda uh, of COP28. Um, do you think they're missing a trick?
3: Well, I think the, um, the, the topic, as I said, for COP28 in general, that, the, you know, elevating the topic of how the way in which we make and use things, uh, including food, is a really crucial part of the climate agenda. In fact, you know, work that we've done and others show that in order to reach the 1.5 degree target, the solutions um, in the real economy, the way in which we make and use things, represent about 45% of the solution space. You know, the energy um, transition to renewables and efficiency is the other 55 so you know plastics is an important part of that and for us plastics is a, a really is a demonstration case because it's it's so ubiquitous everybody around the world is exposed to plastics every single day particularly plastics packaging and i think what's interesting is that if we can move on this topic which which clearly links to um it, to the energy agenda as well for example uh, in the in the companies that we're working with it in the global commitment uh, they're vastly exceeding the uh, use of recycled content compared to those that aren't signatories, and in fact, they've they've um, increased their recycled content to the extent that it's it, it's in effect taken a barrel of oil off the market every two seconds. So you can see the linkage wow. between uh, materials and and products, and you know the energy impact that they have, and and I think that's the that's the trick we need to. Get a bit more focus on at, uh, at COP this year.
2: Andrew Morlitt, thank you very much. You're welcome. Coming up on a future agenda, dealing with debt. How can the world cope with ever-growing deficits? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.